0: Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Bader. That was Eric Stewart with the excellent night and day from his Fruity Rooties album from 1982. Wow, what a privilege it is uh, for Eric to be here today. You'll probably know him from his period in the Mindbenders, his tenure in 10CC for many years, his collaborations with Paul McCartney, his production work, and much more. Uh, There's a new two-CD compilation out called the Eric Stewart Anthology that is excellent. Eric's also got his autobiography out. The things I do for love. Welcome so much, Eric. Thank you.
1: That's that's great. Yes, uh, you, you just well, you summed everything up nicely. All solo tracks, even though some of them were released uh, on Ten CC albums. These were all songs recorded by me, without any uh, of the other Ten CC members being involved.
0: And from the Eric Stewart anthology, we opened with Night and Day, originally on Fruity Rooties, your solo album. That track's got a real 50s feel.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something I've always wanted to do, is is to do a song with a boogie piano backing. Now, I can't play boogie piano, so uh, what I was doing at that point in time, recording at the second studio we built down in uh, Dorking, which was called Strawberry South, uh, I was working with Sad Cafe, uh, and you know, that had Paul Young, the, the other Paul Young, the Manchester Paul Young as lead vocalist, but the pianist with them, who eventually did join 10 touring group for a while, was called Vic Emerson, and he could play the most brilliant boogie piano. So I got him to back me on that, and night and day came from that backing. Definitely 1950s, as you said, and that's when I was sort of really growing up, I suppose, But it wasn't until the early 60s, sort of 61-2, when I was hitting 16 years old, that I really started to learn how to do things and got into a local band called the Emperors of Rhythm, although it was called Jerry Lee and the Stagolese then. And that really set me off on my path to want to be a musician-songwriter.
0: There's so much material to go through today. Um, I think we'll be getting... Two podcasts out of this, hopefully, and with plenty of opportunities later on, especially in the second show, to play many more tracks from the excellent Eric Stewart anthology. I'd like to take us back, uh, way back into the uh, early to mid-60s, and it does seem incredible now that you um, hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 with uh, Wayne Fontana as you you were part of the Mindbenders with the Game of Love. I mean, that must have been just fantastic, you know, in the height of Beatlemania.
1: It was incredible. Yes, you're right, because we were rubbing shoulders with the Beatles and people like that. Uh, being in Manchester, we were shooting across to Liverpool and they were shooting across to Manchester to do the same sort of clubs that we were working in. And it was just brilliant watching them develop. The Beatles were astounding because they were already writing their own stuff we weren't we were uh, we were writing b-sides and things like that wayne was a very good vocalist so people were sending songs to us and that particular song there the game of love which did hit number one in england and uh, america was written by uh, clint ballard jr i've never heard of him before he's an american writer and our A&R man at Philips Records, uh, a guy called Jack Bavistock, said, got a song here, Wayne, that I think just great for you. Uh, and, and the boys, the mind benders. Uh, and we, we listened to it and said, yeah, OK, let's do it. And blow me down, it was the first number one we've ever had, any of us. So big thrill, like winning the lottery, it was absolutely astounding.
0: Yeah, Clint Bowles also wrote, I'm Alive for the Hollies. Yeah,
1: you're right. Yeah, that was one of his. We did try uh, a couple of other uh, of his tracks. Uh, a little bit too late was another one, but that it didn't make the top twenty. It just didn't have the same groove as the game of love, which really was very commercial.
0: More incredible is that Wayne later that year in 1965 actually left you. <laughs> That's right, he did.
1: It, it, he, he left the band. He left us on stage one night and we were playing at Wembley, not not at Wembley Pool or anything, but in a, in a local ballroom there. And uh, about three quarters of the way through the show, he just turned round to us and said, "It's all yours. I'm off." And he walked off the stage, literally. And we were stood there, the three of us, for about 30 seconds. And I said to the other guys, we can't walk off. We'll just, you know, I'll explain to them that Wayne is not feeling well. And because we were all all three of us actually singing songs in the act at that point in time, um, we carried on, went down very well with the audience. And then we left the stage and got back in the dressing room with Wayne. And we said, "What the yeah, what the F is going on? And he said, he said, I'm leaving. He said, I'm just sick of being in the band. I want to go on my own. I want to be a solo artist. And a lot of other guys had done that. You know, Brian Poole had left the Tremlow's uh, and other people. And um, the guy with the move in Birmingham, well, what was his name? Uh, Cal Wayne. Yeah. And uh, he, he left them. And the weird thing was none of them had the same success that they'd had with their groups. Uh, Just a weird coincidence, but looking back on it, that surprised me. But I then had to take over as lead vocalist with the Mindbenders. Thank God. Again, the A&R man at Phillips, Jack Bavistock, said, Eric, I've got something I think would suit your voice beautifully. It's called uh, Groovy Kind of Love, written by two girls from the Brill Building in New York. Brill Building was a, a songwriter's paradise, Mostly Jewish writers, actually, some very, very famous ones. And these two girls, Tony Wine and Carol Bayer, were both 16 years old, and they wrote a groovy kind of love, which was based on a piece of classical music, actually, from the 17th century, 18th century. Sorry, yeah, the notation of it, and uh, he played it to to us, and it was a very good demo, actually. It could have been a hit itself we we recorded it and well blow me down got the first number one with me singing
0: Another smash on both sides of the Atlantic.
1: Yeah. Again, we were then t- t- touring worldwide, uh, which was phenomenal, right throughout Europe. We-, we were quite big in Germany and Holland especially. Um, Britain, of course, and getting the hits in the States was very good for us. But we started to spread out further than places like Australia. Again, it was very exciting and, gosh, I mean, we were all about, uh, I think I was just 21 then, yeah. Very thrilling to, to get those uh, big hits at that point in time. And then 1966 was such a fabulous year, getting that number one with Groovy. We also appeared uh, in the film with Sidney Poitier and Lulu and Judy Geese called To Sir With Love. That was another big, massive plus. And the other big plus for me, the most fabulous plus, was that I married... Uh, the girl who I'm still married to now. In fact, this year it's our 52nd wedding anniversary. I married Gloria, and she'd been my girlfriend for about three years. But all in that year, 1966, it was such a magic, magic year.
0: And quite an inspiration for a number of your songs. Getting back to the uh, To Sir With Love soundtrack, uh, I like uh, the Mindbenders song. It's getting harder all the time. (laughs)
2: It's hard to live in the world without you And it's getting harder, it's getting harder It's getting harder all the time It's so hard to walk past the phone now And not to try your life It's hard to try your man Baby, I must have you by my side. Kept up wishing for what I had. Need your kisses and I need them. So hard to go on living. I know that you're not mine. It's hard without all the love.
0: The latter period of the Mind Benders, there is actually a ten C C connection, isn't there? Because uh, quite a few uh, tracks in this period were actually written by Graham Goldman. Yes, um,
1: because our management group in Manchester were called Kennedy Street Artists. One of those guys actually managed Graham Goldman as the songwriter, and, and got him through to people like the Hollies. Herman's Hermits was on their roster as well so they, they also released a couple of of Graham's songs Yardbirds did For Your Love yes, all, all those things were coming through from Graham Goldman and, and his father mainly because his father was a, a an amateur um, playwright uh, and he used to come up with these phenomenal words uh, sections uh, Graham was incredibly good on chords guitar chords uh, some very, very interesting chords so a combination of those two guys writing those songs together were worldwide successful. It was incredible, the success they had. And we got uh, we got a couple of them, but unfortunately, none of ours were hits.
0: <laughs> yeah, interestingly, you released a version of Graham Goldman's Schoolgirl, but the uh, Hollies also attempted a version of that in the uh, late Nash era.
1: Yeah, it was. It was schoolgirl with seven GCs, her main... Ambition was to collect degrees. First line, I remember it so well. I, I like the song, but uh, unfortunately, no, it's stiffed. <laughs>
2: Seven GCEs for one ambition Was to collect degrees But in a library Researching English lit She met a student Who took a mind of it She was attracted By his groovy looks He taught her lessons She couldn't find in books He swore he loved her Forever and the day And she believed him She let him have his way She was growing big. He studied nature. She'd been a guinea pig, and then he left her. You've hit it all before. Though educated, she didn't know the score.
0: So as you mentioned, uh, by the late 60s, you were kind of doing a bit more songwriting and production work in general?
1: Yeah, I was starting to write most of the B-sides, with Wayne and with the mind Mindbenders, because you know, nobody really cared what the B-sides were, but I was very interested in trying to get some songs published and recorded and hopefully get other people to record them. But I had to go somewhere else uh, that wasn't expensive, and there was a little demo studio called Intercity Studios, which was above a hi-fi shop in Stockport. And I went in there, and I met up with a guy called Peter Tattersall and uh, did my demos there. And then one day, Peter said to me, oh, he said, Eric, he said, i got some bad news, man. The people who own the hi-fi shop below, they're taking over my studio and they're turning it into a canteen for the staff, so I've got to get out. Well, that was, again, it was another one of those Nevada moments for me. I said, well, why don't we open our own studio? I'll help finance it. And we found a building in Stockport and opened that, but instead of intercity studios... I'd always loved uh, Strawberry Fields, the Beatles song. I said, let's call it Strawberry Studios. And Pete said, great, yeah, we'll do it. And bang, we had our own studio. And
0: there's that very famous story now of uh, you, Kevin and Low, um, jamming and um, testing the equipment, which
1: ultimately led to Neanderthal Man. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, studio experiment. Again, it's one of those lovely things that happens sometimes in your life when you you've no idea that something can come out as something that was at the time so odd and it didn't even register anything to to me at the time. But we just bought an Ampex 4-track tape recorder and I was experimenting on it to see how many drum tracks I could get it to record before it started distorting. Kevin Godley used to come in and do some demos for people and his, his mate, Lol Cream who I knew quite well in the studio, but not personally at that point in time. I I said to them, "Will will you come in and just have a mess around with me? Kevin, can you play drums? And Kevin said, yeah, sure. And while he was playing drums, Lowell was sat on a chair in front of the bass drum with a guitar, just singing anything that came into his head. And he actually started singing, I'm a Neanderthal man. You're a Neanderthal girl. Let's make Neanderthal love in this Neanderthal world, just to keep the rhythm going. And it kept, as I I was adding more tracks, it was becoming quite a hypnotic chant. But again, another wacky coincidence, guy from Philips Records uh, was there trying to um, book some time for one of their artists, and uh, he said, Eric, what the hell is that you're playing in the studio? I said, oh, it's just an experiment. Dick Leahy, his name was, the a man. He said, that, play it again for me, will you? So I played it. And he said, Eric, that's a hit record. I said, you're joking. He said, no, it's a hit record. And, you know, we'll sign you if, if you if you want to. You know, will you sign up? I asked the other two guys, and we all said, we'd be delighted. Of course we would. So they signed us up. We didn't have any name or anything. But we knew the track would be called Neanderthal Man, because that was what Lowell was singing all the way through it. Uh, and we also had a lovely girl there um, at the studio called, uh, oh gosh, I forget her name at the moment. It'll come back to me in a minute, who used to wear those fantastic hot pants that were fashionable at the time, and she had very good legs. So we said, what about hot legs? We'll call our group Hot Legs after this girl. Dick said, yeah, okay. We signed a contract and blow me down a number two record.
0: Even recorded an album, didn't you? Um, There's a song called How Many
1: Times, which is really cool as well. Yes, we did. Yeah, called Think School Stinks. (laughs) Again, we were experimenting totally then because Kevin Lowell uh, were both art students. I think they went to Stoke Art College and they were coming up with the most wacky ideas. You, you, You never, some of those ideas they came up with eventually for for 10 were just so off the wall. But they were coming up with these great, great ideas. So the three of us said, well, okay. Phillips Records rang us up and said, the record's going to be a hit. Have you got any other stuff? We can release an album. And we actually hadn't. So we all got together and said, well, have you written anything? Have you written anything? We decided to sit there and just get ideas coming up for the album. And it worked. We were so excited about it. Then the record, you know, as I said, the single went to number two. Neanderthal Man went to number two. And we all said, bloody hell, right, let's let's get writing. Any ideas? Any ideas? Anybody got any ideas? And we, we, we did. We got an album together, although it didn't really make a massive difference in the charts. But again, it established the studio. And then we started getting people like McCartney, Scuffled, uh, Neil Sadaka, people like that wanting to record there, which was fabulous for us. For our, the name of the studio, it, it, you know, the the word went around the world so fast. We were full. Sometimes we couldn't even get in the bloody studio ourselves to record.
0: And up until around this period, uh, Graham was in America, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, he was working over there, getting writing uh, requests from other people, he was writing with some other people, but nothing was really coming through. Uh what what they were, they were working with a company called Casnet's Cats in New York who were doing like what we would call bubblegum music. So he was over there writing but uh nothing was happening, you know, it it, it really he really didn't get into it or they didn't get any hits. But then he learned that we'd got this number two record with the Neanderthal man. So Kevin drew this beautiful drawing of, of Graham leaping across the Atlantic saying, they're getting hits there. Get back as quick as you can. He's leaping the Atlantic with a suitcase in his hand. It's a great drawing. I wish I still had it. In fact, I wonder if Kevin's just still got it all along. I must ask them. Anyway, uh, yeah, so he came back, and then he became a co-director of Strawberry Studios. He bought into it, where Godly and Cream didn't. A, well, they didn't have any money at the time, and, you know, I was still earning from the Mindbenders and so on, so uh, Graham came in as a quarter director. Yeah.
0: And this all created the conditions, ultimately, I guess, where you formed 10CC? It was.
1: We got a request after we had um, Neanderthal Man, to form a group ourselves. And I'd written a song called Waterfall that Graham uh, provided some chords for. And we recorded that. And it was a really interesting song, quite uh, interesting sound-wise, big, big sound, lots of vocals. And we said, well, we've got to do a B-side too. And and Kevin and Law said, oh, he said, we've got this sort of 50s takeoff, 50s doo-wop takeoff. It's called Donna. So it's said, okay, let's record that as the B-side then. We recorded that, Law singing in a very, very high voice, tight underpants voice. We tried it around the record companies, and nobody would go for it. But I remember Jonathan King, who had just started his own record label called UK Records, and he was getting hits himself with all this stuff weird stuff he followed the mind benders around saying I'd love to have you guys on my label I can make you bigger than the Beatles and we used to say oh, son, oh come on you've got to be out of your mind Beatles now anyway after getting these refusals from these other record companies I decided gave him a ring he said well bring bring down. he had his office in London he said bring, bring the tracks down let me have a listen took the tracks down to him, and he said, well, he said, Eric, he said, Waterfall's a beautiful song. He said, but Donna is a hit. And I said, what? Are you joking? He said, yeah, it's a hit. I said, okay, great. You'll release it. He said, yeah. He said, what's the name of the band? I said, oh, bloody hell, we haven't got a name. The last thing we were was Hot Legs with Neanderthal Man. And Jonathan actually said, I had a dream the other day. You won't believe this. I saw a sign outside Wembley Pool saying 10cc, greatest group in the world. I said, wow, well, that had better be us then. I said, what does it mean, 10cc? And he said, I've got no idea. He said, but that's what I saw. So I rang Kevin Lowell, Godly and Cream, and I said, what do you think about this? And they said, yeah, well, why not? Is he offering us a contract? I said, yeah. He said, okay, you can call us anything. So we got back, by the time I got back to Manchester, they'd figured out that 10cc was something to do with, I don't know whether I can say this on uh, on the, uh, something to do with the, the male ejaculation, which is uh, supposed to be an average of 9cc. Now, we didn't know this, but we very soon learned this and said, so, oh, bloody hell, 10cc, go one better. But let's not mention that when we, we talk about the group. So we became 10cc. They released Donna on UK records. And again, we had another number two record.
0: Incredible uh, creative period, especially with the sort of crucible of creativity from Kevin and Lowell uh, the more arguably conventional songwriting of yourself and Graham, and then obviously cross collaboration and the production. I mean, it's just marvellous, um, you know. And straight into that uh, debut album of yours, it was completely a sort of apparent. Another
1: song I like is "Fresh Air for My Mama." The chemistry was phenomenal between us. Yeah, we we, we we it was just coming out of our heads all day long. and Sometimes we'd swap partners and I'd write with Lol or write with Kevin. But the two key uh, duos were myself and Graham Gouldman and Godley and Cream and the wacky ideas they came up with. The balance was wonderful because we were writing, as you said, a more sort of commercial not so much in love songs, but more commercial, understandable songs. Uh, lyrics you could understand was Godly and Cream were coming out with ideas and we're always looking at each other and saying, where the hell did that come from? Where did you get that idea from? You know, a bomb on an aeroplane, uh, a man doing a Charles Atlas course, Dynamic Tension. Where are these songs coming from? <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, that, that's the way it started to happen and we did our first album which was it was very successful, and we were spreading throughout Europe then. As, as I said, uh, Holland, Germany, um, not so much France, but then Australia and America. People really wanted to to buy our stuff, so that album did sell very very well.
2: Say what you gotta say. Don't say nothing at all. You've been tossing and turning through soft, sticky nights, while the Bronx below you fights to stay alive. So say one and so say all. Be what you got. Be gracious to your mother when you leave this neighborhood. The
0: This was a period where so many of your tracks could have been singles uh, as we enter your second album, as 10cc, uh, in sheet music. and uh, So many great songs. Uh, the singles are absolutely fantastic, such as Wall Street Shuffle. That's a true story, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, Wall, Wall Street Shuffle, I'll tell you about Wall Street Shuffle and I'll tell you about the title Sheep sheet music as well. But anyway, well, Wall Street Shuffle, we actually were invited to to New York, uh, and just driving across that street one day, Law said, think of everything that's going on here in Wall Street, all those guys with the money, and what they're doing. They're fiddling it. They're doing the Wall Street Shuffle. I said, yes, what a great idea for a title, the Wall Street Shuffle, Well, in in that box in the back of my head. So by the time I got back to uh, England, Uh, I I said to to Graham Goldman, we should write a song about the Wall Street Shuffle. It was still in my head. And we did. It came up very, very quickly. So that's where that one came from. The title sheet music came about because some reports on the NME, I I forget his name, was pretty scathing about 10CC. He called it a pile of, excuse me, shit. So I said, well, that guy thinks we're shit. Let's turn that into sheet it's not shit music. It's sheet music, which was the tablature when you, you can go and buy from a, a, a publishing shop or something like that. If you you wanted all the chords to any song in the world, you would buy the sheet music of it. So, well, that that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Let's let's tie that in sheet music with our music, and everything just rolled off that title then. Uh, all the different tracks that are on that album. The gosh. I mean, usually six tracks per side down with the old vinyl albums. Gosh, you know, we were on a a tidal wave. We were on a tidal wave. It was so exciting. Everything we did, people seemed to like. So, yeah, we were thrilled to get into that. Wall Street Shuffle was the key one on that album, I think. favourite album, actually, sheet music. It's interesting, interesting because we were really experimenting, and I was so looking forward each day just to go down to the studio and see you know where we would find ourselves each day because we were experimenting so much. Um, it was just a thrill, and you know they were paying us for it. It was absolutely wonderful.
0: Yeah, given what you were talking about with uh, sheet music, this humour as well. Uh, worst band in the world <laughs>
1: Yeah, worst band in the world yeah <laughs> we tried to release that as a single but the BBC banned it because we left that one word out what is it one thing to know it another to admit we're the worst band in the world but we don't give a and of course we left the word shit out the BBC banned it even though we would left it out we tried to change it and we put the word up We and we don't give up well, that time it had died, so didn't get away that song. <laughs>
0: So to close this uh, first podcast, Eric, I'd like to finish with a song from the original soundtrack. Yeah. It really does feel like the sort of culmination of this crucible of forces that we've been talking about, especially on the ideas with the production added to such an incredible song. You know, it's truly, truly magical.
1: Well, it could have died, you know, and, and, and it, it's such an interesting story. The, the, the whole idea of the song, I'm not in love, came about because my wife, Gloria, said to me, we have been married about nine years then, had actually said to me, why don't you say I'm, I love you so much anymore? Um, and my answer was, well, if I keep saying it, it's going to lose all its power. It's going to lose its meaning. So and I, went, uh, I went away and started thinking about it. And then I thought about it in a rhetorical way. I thought, well, what if I say I'm not in love? here are all the reasons why i am totally still in love with you and it, it kept, after thinking that idea i wrote i wrote the verses so fast and then i played them to graham goldman and uh he came up with some beautiful chords some beautiful chords i had the intro chords, sussed and that sort of thing that's a he came up with these great chords within the song and um we went in the studio to record it with Kevin Lowell, Godly and Cream. And the first version we did was an almost bossa nova version. And it was nice, but no one was getting turned on by it. And um, it was Kevin again, who was uh, very forth and forward in some of his uh, complaints sometimes. And he said, I think it's a pile of crap. I said, what? what? He said, yeah. He said, it, 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 just, it doesn't turn me on. He said, why don't we do it all with voices? I said, what do you mean like a cappella? Four of us sing. He said, no, no, do the whole track with voices, all the backings, do them as voices. I said, no instrumentation. He said, no, we'll just have some rhythm, keep the speed going. And the more we thought about it, I said, well, how the hell are we going to do a whole backing track with just four of us. And it was Lowell Cream who said, why don't we make tape loops like the Mellotron tape keyboard machine? We can do tape loops of every note in a chromatic scale and we can utilize those loops in order, because by that time we were on a 16-track recorder, so we can put all those notes uh, using loops for as long as we want. So we did that, and we, we spent three weeks singing R, all of us singing the, the, the R for, for a chromatic scale, filled 13 tracks of the Ampex, another Ampex tape machine, with R's for about eight minutes long, each one. And then we, we sang, I sang the song again using a very uh, simple electric piano backing, just me singing with that. And then four of us got around the control desk and started, uh, I put each person on four faders so we could each change the chords from the loops coming from the other tracks of the tape recorder to change the chords as the chords were changing within the song. And little little stabs going, on, ha, 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 things like that, Lowell put in. As I say, it took about three weeks to do all those voices and get it down on tape. But when we'd done it, we sat there for hours listening to it saying, what the hell have we done? What the hell is this? It was over, at that point in time, eight minutes long. We knew we had something interesting. Well, what could we do with it? Um, the guide vocal I'd put on there, I couldn't get better. So that's the guide vocal. We added a little a piano solo. In, in the middle of it, with Lowell playing the melody on a piano. Uh, that worked beautifully, and it just went on and on. When we looked at the timing of it, we said, it's never going to be a single. It's it's far too long. I think it, by that point in time, it was six minutes, 12 seconds at the end of the fade. Uh, anyway, we started to get people in the studio wandering up and down, and they were they were all singing it. They singing the words and the little stabbing ha ah, ah, and those sort of things. And we said, you know, I don't think we've quite understood what we've got here. Let's take it to the record company. And they listened to it once <laughs> and said, that is a smash. That is a smash, my God. Uh, but they said to me, can you shorten it? And I said, where do you want me to shorten it? I don't know. He said... The, the MD said at the record company, no, uh, you decide. I said, well, no, I can't. And I was getting really stupidly bo- bullshit about this. And I said, are you going to tell Mozart well, that you don't like that bit? Or are you going to tell him to get rid of some bits and let him chew? No, I said, no, I can't do that. So I said, okay, okay, we'll go with you. We'll release it. So we released it as a six minute, 12 seconds number. And it started to get bits of plays. And then the BBC, they called me up at the studio and said, Eric, can you edit this? It's too long as a a single. And I said, no, I can't. I can't. I, I I don't know where to chop it because it will ruin it. We've created an atmosphere there that you don't want to chop up. But blow me down. The week later, it hit the charts at number 29. And within three weeks, it was number one in its full length. So, wow, how could I get it any better? But I'm so pleased I I hung in there and said, no, I'm not going to chop it. And, you know, the guys stayed with me on that, Kev and Graham. They all stayed with me on that, and we we hung out, thank God.
0: Yeah, there's been lots of cover versions of that, but there's something in the recording of that that just could never be recreated.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things that happen. I do adore some a lot of other people's songs and they have that certain have that magic that you cannot computerize somehow. You can't say well go and do another one because it's unique. And the Beatles are very good at that. Some of their songs are unique. You can't copy them and do it again. But it was a thrill getting it to number one, believe me. And number one worldwide. Nearly every country in the world, number one. Uh, jesus that that was a, a, a big success mm-hmm.
2: Just a silly face I'm gone